Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show where you will learn how to unpack addiction, transformative approaches that educate and heal humanity. My first guest is Johan Hari, and this interview originally aired in January of 2016. Johan Hari is the New York Times bestselling author of Chasing the Scream, which is being adapted into a feature film. He was twice named Newspaper Journalist of the Year by Amnesty International UK. He has written for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and others, and he is a regular panelist on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. Johan, thanks for joining us again. Oh, it's lovely to be back with you, Lisa. Thanks so much. Let's, let's talk about Lost Connections and what prompted you to write the book. There were these two kind of mysteries that were hanging over me. Um, I'm 39 years old. Every single year I've been alive almost, depression and anxiety have increased in the United States and Britain. And I wanted to understand why, what, what's happening? Why does this seem to be going up every year that passes? And I wanted to understand that partly for a very personal reason, which is the kind of second, which led me to the second mystery. When I was a teenager, I had gone to my doctor and I'd explained that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me. I couldn't control it or regulate it. I, I didn't understand it. I felt very ashamed of it. And my doctor told me a story. This is the late 90s. Lots of people were being told this story. Lots of your listeners will be recognize this story. He said, oh, we know why, the, why you feel this way. This is a, scientists have discovered it. There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains. Some people are naturally lacking it. You're clearly one of them. Uh, and the only solution you need is for me to give you these drugs that will boost your serotonin levels and you'll feel fine. And I felt a tremendous amount of relief to be told this story. And then when I started taking the drugs, I experienced an even greater amount of relief. But within a couple of months, this sense of pain started to bleed back through. So I went back to my doctor. He said, oh, clearly I didn't give you a high enough dose. I took a higher dose. Again, I felt some real relief. Again, the feeling of pain started to bleed back through. And I was in this cycle until eventually I was taking the maximum possible dose for 13 years, at the end of which I was still depressed. And I wanted to, and I'd experienced a lot of side effects. And I wanted to understand well, what's going on here. So for my book, Lost Connections, I ended up going on a very long journey. I went over 40,000 miles around the world from San Francisco to Sao Paulo to Sydney to, to really sit with the leading experts in the world on what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them. And people with very different perspectives from an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have very low levels of depression, to a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if that would affect people's mental health, to a lab in Baltimore where they were, where they were giving people psychedelic drugs to see if that would help with their depression. <laughs> and I think we can talk about that if you want. Oh, do tell. <laughs> and I think that <laughs> I think the the main I learned so many things, but I think the 
the core of it is I realized until I was until I went to my doctor when I was a teenager, I thought my depression was all in my head, meaning I was just weak and it is a man up and insert whatever stigmatizing cliche you could think of there. And and then for the next 13 years, I thought my depression was all in my head, meaning it was just a chemical imbalance in my brain. What I learned on this journey from the leading experts in the world is actually neither of those stories is quite right. There are real biological factors like your genes that can make you more sensitive to this problem. But actually, the core reasons why we're depressed and anxious are largely not in our heads. They're mostly in the way we're living. I learned there are nine causes of depression and anxiety for which there is scientific evidence. Only two of them are biological. The rest are factors in the way we're living. And once I learned that, it led me on a path to discover very different ways out of depression and anxiety, ones that are really effective. And let's talk a little bit about that, because I find this is quite hopeful that, you know, if we if we nail the uh, biological component, you know, increasing serotonin, whether it's done pharmacologically or nutritionally, then what? Well, one of the ways that helped me to think on think about this in a different way is I interviewed a South African psychiatrist called Derek Summerfield, who happened to be in Cambodia when chemical antidepressants were first introduced there. And the Cambodian doctors didn't know what these drugs were. They'd never heard of them. So he explained, and they said to him, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine and got his leg blown off. And um, they gave him an artificial leg and he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's very physically painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial limb. I'm also imagining it was pretty traumatic because these are the fields where he'd been blown up. Uh, he started to cry all the time, didn't want to get out of bed, classic depression. They said to Derek, we gave him an antidepressant. He said, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense. It wasn't some irrational misfiring. It was a response to things that had happened. They figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't have to be going into these fields where it was traumatizing him so much. They bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his depression went away. He was fine. They said to Derek, so that cow, that was an antidepressant, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that it's a chemical imbalance in your brain only, then of course that sounds like a bad joke, right? I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. He gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the World Health Organization has been trying to tell us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not crazy. You're not a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs. And you need love and support, practical support, to get those needs met. Now, that's a very different way of thinking about depression and anxiety. And it took me quite a long time to absorb that. But it then led me to think, well, what's the cow for the things, the nine factors that are making us depressed and anxious? And I can, I can talk a bit about that if you want. I, I would love to talk about that. But I want to just ask you a question about the unmet hmm. needs. Because in my work, because I do work on the dark side most days, and I'm constantly sitting with people who really are challenged by uh, addiction, trauma, depression, and anxiety are certainly underlying issues in most of those cases. And this notion that when the brain is telling us that we are not satisfied and we are sad, there's usually a good reason for it, which ties into what you're about to share. 
think that's totally right. I remember, as you can tell from my weird Downton Abbey voice, I'm British and I spent a lot of my time in the US. And I remember when I first came to the US, being really shocked by the existence of indigestion pills like Pepto-Bismol because they don't exist in Europe, right? And I remember the first time someone offered me them, I, I remember saying, but wait, your indigestion isn't a malfunction, right? Indigestion <laughs> is a signal from your body that you're eating too fast. You need to slow down. If You, you don't want to get rid of that signal because actually that signal's telling you something really important. If you get rid of that signal, you'll make yourself sick. You'll eat too much. You'll put on too much weight. It's actually a necessary, it's a painful signal. It's a horrible signal, but it's a necessary signal. And, you know, you don't want to take that analogy too far because depression is a million times worse than indigestion. But, but I do think the fact that so many people are distressed and anxious, I think there's really strong evidence. It's telling us we've built a way of living that's not compatible in certain crucial ways with our underlying human nature. I'll give you a very specific example because that can sound a bit fancy and weird in the abstract, right? Uh, we are the loneliest society there's ever been. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could call on in a crisis? When they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none. There are more Americans who have no one they can turn to in a crisis than any other option. And Human beings, the reason why we're alive, Lisa, one of the key reasons we're alive is because our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing, right? We weren't bigger than the animals we took down, but we were much better at cooperating. Every instinct human beings have is to band together as a tribe. You know, uh, one of the men who taught me most, one of the people who taught me most about this is a wonderful man called Professor John Cassiopo, who sadly died this week. He was at the University of Chicago. He was the world's expert on loneliness. And he showed that being acutely lonely is as stressful for human beings as being punched in the face by a stranger, right? Because if you think about the circumstances where we evolved, you know, if you were separated from the tribe, you were depressed and anxious for a really good reason, right? You were about to die. You were in terrible danger. Those are the instincts we have. Now, so Professor Cassiopo proved two things. Firstly, that loneliness causes depression and anxiety. Secondly, that loneliness has massively increased. Now, that helps to explain one of the nine reasons why we have this rising depression and anxiety crisis. And I learned, I know we've got to go to a break in a second. So uh, I learned that there was a, a wonderful person, a wonderful doctor, one of the heroes of my book, Lost Connections, who'd actually discovered a way to deal with that cause of depression and anxiety. But really, what you're saying is the disconnection from those components of our lives that we know breed happiness is the underlying cause of depression and anxiety. You know, it's things like, me mean, yeah, meaning, you know, you can run through the list, right? Meaningful work, trauma, um, security. You know, yeah. we, we, we don't think about that, but it's but it's true. When yeah. we're, our, our safety is undermined, we can become depressed and anxious and it makes perfect sense. Exactly, that it's not, this is the worst thing for me about telling people that depression is just a chemical imbalance in your brain. What it does is it tells you your pain has no meaning, it's irrational, um, and that disconnects you and it disconnects the wider for society from understanding why we feel this way. And if we don't understand why, if we don't have an accurate map of the territory, we can't find our way, way through the territory, we can't find our way out of the territory. Let's take that break now, and when we come back, we'll carry on the conversation with Johan Hari about his book, Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. To learn more, please visit 
thelostconnections.com, on Twitter at Johan Hari 101, and on Facebook, that page is Johan Hari dot page. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we're back continuing the conversation with Johan Hari. This episode originally aired in January of 2016. We're talking about unpacking addiction, transformative approaches to educate and heal humanity. Let's get back to it. So, Johan, prior to the break, we began to talk about some of the underlying causes of depression and anxiety. And I would love to continue the list yeah. and maybe recap yeah. the list in total. Well, well, essentially, because I just just to finish the thing we were talking about before, because we talked about how disconnection from the people around you, from loneliness, is a major driver of depression and anxiety. And one of the heroes of my book, Lost Connections, is a is a doctor in London who discovered a solution to that problem, a really promising way out. So, Dr. Sam Everington was a doctor, is a doctor in a very general practitioner in a very poor part of East London, actually, where I lived for a long time, though sadly he was never my doctor. And Sam was really uncomfortable. Like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants. He thinks they have some value. But he could see that his patients were coming to him with loads of problems, one of which was loneliness, and that these drugs were giving some of them a bit of relief, but were not solving the underlying problem. And so he decided to try an experiment. One day, a woman called Lisa Cunningham came to see him. Lisa had been shut away in her home with terrible depression and anxiety for seven years. Uh, and, and Sam said to her, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you the drugs, but I'm also going to prescribe something else. I'm going to prescribe for you to take part in a group. So there was an area behind the doctor's surgery. It was just kind of like scrubland, right? And he said to Lisa, what I'd like you to do is to turn up a couple of times a week with a group of other depressed and anxious people, I'll turn out and support you. And I'd like you to turn this into something beautiful. The first meeting, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. But what they did is the group, several things happened in this group. Firstly, they had something to talk about that wasn't how terrible they felt, right? They decided (laughs) to learn gardening. They started to put their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the season. These were inner city people. They'd never known anything about the natural world. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a very powerful antidepressant. They also did this thing that that people do when they get together in groups, when they form tribes. They started to solve each other's problems. For example, I mean, this is an extreme example. One of the people in the group was sleeping on the bus, a public bus, right? Um, The other people in the group were horrified. They started pressuring the local authority to get this guy housed. They succeeded. It was the first time a lot of them had done something else for years. It made them feel great. The way Lisa put it to me, as the flowers began to bloom, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. Um, And there was a study in Norway of a very similar program that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for kind of obvious reason, it was dealing with two of the key reasons why they were depressed in the first place, their disconnection from the natural world and their disconnection from other people. And everywhere I went in the world, I write about seven solutions to depression and anxiety, Uh, in in my book, Lost Connections. And everywhere I went in the world, I saw that the most effective solutions were the ones that deal with why we feel so terrible in the first place. 
Yeah. It's it, it's uh, interesting that you mentioned about being disconnected from the natural world. One of the things that I've come to realize in doing this work for so many years is that when you don't go outside and see the sun in the course of a day or don't get the opportunity to just sit in nature for a few minutes and hear the wind and hear the birds and the bees, et cetera, et cetera, we tend to feel depressed. And I'm, I'm thinking of the Japanese study that was done a few years back talking about it was eight minutes a day in nature. Yeah, there's a really interesting. So there's lots of different theories. So there's very good evidence that being in the natural world reduces depression and anxiety. There's different theories about why, and they're probably all true to some degree. So uh, one one theory is that partly what depression is, is being trapped in your own story, right? You, you, you're trapped in your own thoughts. And <laughs> yep. what most people experience in the natural world is a feeling of awe. You get a sense that the world is big and I am small, which actually gives you a tremendous relief when you're depressed. Um, this also seems to be one of the reasons why psychedelics uh, have quite a strong antidepressant effect, right? Because what psychedelics do is they switch off your ego. Drugs like LSD, psilocybin, they switch off your, your sense of ego, and they give you an intense sense of being connected to the world around you. And um, There's other theories about why nature has a strong antidepressant effect. So one of them is put forward by Dr. Isabel Benke, who I interviewed for the book, is animals go crazy in zoos, right, when they're deprived of their habitat. Parrots will rip out their feathers. Horses will start obsessively swaying. Elephants will grind their tusks down to nothing, when to bloody stumps, when actually in the wild their tusks are a source of great pride. Animals go crazy when they're deprived of their habitat. And there's this argument that we have been deprived of our habitat, the habitat we evolved to live in. And for similar reasons, we're, we're going crazy. This is one of the nine reasons I write about in Lost Connections, why our depression and anxiety epidemic has risen. And there's lots of interesting early evidence about this. So, for example, the state prison in Michigan, just by coincidence, happens to have one part looks out over beautiful green fields and the other part looks out over just concrete. And a big study, it's just random where you end up in the prison. And a big study found that people who looked out over the beautiful greenery developed 23% fewer mental health problems than the people who looked out over concrete. But one of the things that's happened is because we live in a society where the only things that get researched and promoted are the things that people can make money out of, we've ended up with this distorted picture. So there's a $10 billion, think about Lisa, who I was talking about, who, who gets prescribed to take part in that gardening program, which had such a powerful effect on her, there's a $0 billion industry in getting her to go gardening. And there's a $10 billion industry in drugging her. Now, that doesn't mean that the drugs have no value. They do have some value for some people. But you can see how we've ended up with this very distorted picture. We've been told there's such a heavily biological story about depression and anxiety. It's not that there aren't biological factors in depression and anxiety. There absolutely are. And I write about them in detail in Lost Connections. But that's dominated pretty much the whole story for what most of us are told. Most of us are told, you know, there's very broad agreement among scientists that there are three kinds of cause of depression and anxiety. There are biological causes, there are psych which are obviously things like your genes. There are psychological causes, which are what you work with so brilliantly, you know, how we think about ourselves. And then there are social causes, which are how we interact with our environment. They're all real. But what we've had up to now is we've been told basically a biological story with a very small side dish of a psychological story and nothing <laughs> about the social story, right? And actually what the World Health Organization, the leading medical body in the world says, is mental health is primarily a social indicator. It has social causes 
and it needs social as well as individual solutions. That's not some wacky fringe body. These are the leading doctors in the world. I mean, the UN's leading doctor said last year that we need to talk less about chemical imbalances and more about power imbalances if we're going to deal with depression and anxiety. Indeed. Let's let's talk for a moment about what your journey looked like at the end of your research, because you came, you came into the project having a, a personal vested interest as well as a, 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 an intellectual interest in yeah. depression. Yeah. I'll talk to you about the hardest thing I learned. I'm trying to make myself talk about this in interviews. Um, I went and interviewed an incredible man called Dr. Vincent Felitti, who discovered something extraordinary about depression. I will tell you the story about how he discovered it because um, and it's going to sound for a moment like I'm talking about a completely different thing, but just bear with me because it led to this breakthrough and I don't think you can understand it if you don't understand the story. In the mid-1980s, Dr. Felitti was asked by Kaiser Permanente, one of the big medical providers in California, to do blue skies research into a big problem they had. There were massively rising costs associated with obesity and nothing they were doing was working. So they said to him, look, just give him a load of money and said, figure out what's going on. So we started to work with people who, 350 extremely obese people who weighed more than 400 pounds. And one day he had this kind of, what seems like a kind of dumb idea, right? He just thought, what would happen if they literally just stopped eating and we just gave them nutrients, right? Would they just burn through the fat stores in their body until they were a normal weight? And it turns out it worked, right? They, they did in fact lose loads of weight. Um, and then one day, one of the stars of the program, a woman I'm going to call Susan to protect her medical confidentiality, cracked and fled to KFC and starts just gorging, right? And and Vincent called her in and said, well, what happened, Susan? It turned out that day, something had happened to her that never happened to her when she was extremely overweight. Uh, a man had, had hit on her and it really freaked her out. And then Vincent said, well, tell me about when you started to put on weight. It was when she was 11. He said, well, why was it when you were 11 and not when you were, say, 10 or 13? She said, well, that's when my grandfather started to rape me. Mm. She, what, what Vincent discovered is 55% of the people in the program had started to put on weight in the wake of being sexually abused. And as Susan put it to him, overweight is overlooked and that's what I needed to be, right? So actually this thing that seemed irrational, obesity, was in fact serving a perfectly rational function, right? It was protecting them. Anyway, this led to a breakthrough in depression because Vincent then started, everyone who came to Kaiser Permanente for the next year for medical care of any kind was given a questionnaire. It asked about 10 bad things that can happen to you as a kid, you know, um, neglect, abuse. And then it said, have you had any of these problems as an adult? Things like obesity. And then it asked about depression and suicide. What they found was extraordinary. For every category of trauma you experienced, you were radically more likely to become depressed and anxious. And um, in fact, if you had six of those categories, you had 3,000, you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide as an adult, right? And what Dr. Felidi found next was that if you gave people safe spaces where they could talk about the shame of that experience, it led to a really significant fall in depression and anxiety that was difficult for me to think about because I'd experienced quite extreme childhood trauma when I was younger. But again, it was one of the things I kept learning for my book, Lost Connections. Yeah. If you understand the problem differently, you find solutions that actually work. It's a hard journey to go on, but it's a really important one, I think. We don't have a lot of time, and I wanted to just touch upon the relationship between the growth in social media and the increase in depression. Yeah, I, went, I think this is huge. 
I wanted to understand this. I went to the first ever internet rehab center in Washington state. And I think the the core of what's happening there is the internet is like a parody of the things we've lost. We've lost our networks of friends, so it offers us Facebook friends. We've lost status, it offers us status updates, right? But but it's not what we've lost. It's a parody of the thing we lost. The relationship between social media and social life is like the relationship between pornography and sex, right? Uh, I'm not against porn, but if your whole sex life consisted of porn, you would be going around constantly frustrated and because your deeper needs would not be met. In a similar way, if too much of your social life is taken up with social media and interacting through screens, which is not how we evolved, um, you're going to feel frustrated because it doesn't meet your deeper needs. You and I could be talking now, you know, you think about this conversation we're having, if we were sitting here looking at each other and talking face to face, we would feel we were seeing each other much more clearly and more profoundly. Human beings didn't evolve for screen-based interaction. I'm not against screen-based interaction. It has some value, but but we need we, we need community. It doesn't it hasn't replaced the things we've lost. It's a parody of the things we've lost. Well we need eye contact. We need touch. Yeah. We need we need love. I mean underlying all of this, right, is the disconnection from that secret sauce ultimately. Absolutely. That's a beautiful way of putting it, yeah. Oh my goodness, we're out of time once again. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I'll see you soon in air quotes. <laughs> I would I would love that, Lisa. And I should just say my publishers tell me off. If anyone wants any more info, if I don't say this, if I if anyone wants any more information about the book, they can find out what Elton John, Russell Brand, Ariana Huffington, Hillary Clinton, Tucker Carlson, and loads of other people have said about the book at www.thelostconnections.com. They can also find take a quiz to see how much they know about the causes of depression and anxiety. They can listen to audio of loads of the amazing people that we've been talking about and uh, lots of other good things. Oh, you, you're a dream to have on as a guest because you can you can do your own plug. Uh, but to connect with you on Twitter, folks can look, uh, reach out at Johan Hari 101 and on Facebook, johanhari.page. Thank you again, Johan, for hanging out with me. Uh, what a pleasure. Thanks so much, Lisa. I really appreciate it. Here comes the break. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. And we're back continuing the conversation about unpacking addiction, transformative approaches to educate and heal humanity. My next guest is Noah Levine, and this interview originally aired in June of 2018. Noah Levine started his journey of recovering from addiction through the practice of Buddhism in 1988. At the time, he was sitting in a jail cell, so helpless and demoralized that he found the willingness to try his father's quote, and I'm doing the air quotes as I say this, hippie meditation bullshit, end quote. Much to his surprise and great relief, Noah found in Buddhist meditation a sense of well-being that nothing else ever provided. Noah was eventually trained and empowered to teach by Jack Kornfeld, and we'll get into his work in the course of our discussion because he is really a legend in this, in this area. Noah went on to create Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society, and now offers the Refuge Recovery Program. Good morning, Noah. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Happy to be here. 
Oh, really happy to have you. Let's talk a little bit about your own journey and where it took you and how you arrive where you are today. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. I'm I'm one of the people who feels pretty strongly that uh, in the beginning, drugs and alcohol probably saved my life. I was um, suicidal and uh, kind of despondent as a child and c- contemplated suicide really regularly. And uh, when I started drinking and using drugs, it um, actually gave me the relief from the pain and confusion of my childhood and um, was the solution, you know, self-medicating solution for some time. It didn't last long, though. In my teen years, I got strung out on cocaine, crack cocaine, and um, started injecting heroin and was drinking alcoholically for, you know, just a, just a few years, but enough um, pain and suffering and consequences. I was somebody who, you know, committed a lot of crimes and was in and out of uh, institutions. And uh, I bottomed out really young at 17 years old in 1988. I was finished and um, willing to, to seek help and to start looking for a way to heal and recover. And what did that help look like? You were in jail and you were, were you detoxing in jail? Yeah, I was absolutely kicking and detoxing. And I had um, a suicide attempt while I was in jail and and ended up in a um, observation cell, a kind of padded room. And had the first, you know, the first piece was just my internal realization of taking responsibility for why I was there. Uh, my first half of my life, I had blamed everybody else and um, yes. and felt like a real victim. And then at that point, I just realized that I couldn't blame anybody else and that nobody was forcing me to do drugs or commit crimes or anything else, and that it was really my choices, you know, the way that I was reacting to my pain. And with that realization, um, you know, I had a phone call from my father who said, uh, maybe you want to try meditating. And my father's a meditation teacher and I grew up around, you know, it, but I had really rejected it um, and not really understood what it was about. But as I began to meditate, I had a very simple but powerful experience and realization. I was given mindfulness meditation instructions, just told to pay attention to my breath and... And as I paid attention to my breath, it became clear that that was a momentary relief from what my thinking mind was doing. All of the fear of the future and regret of the past was temporarily suspended. And so I realized that I don't have to obey my own mind. (laughs) I love that. You know, don't believe everything you think kind of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a very compelling story because it is one that unfortunately or fortunately, depending upon how you view it, repeats itself often in addiction recovery, that that drugs were a gift and a haven, a place to make the pain temporarily go away. And then eventually there is the realization that the needless suffering is optional and then making the conscious decision to do something about it. Yeah. 
And these are the gifts of your work, which are both simple and complicated at the same time. When you tell somebody, I'm going to teach you to meditate or teach you the tools for being mindful, that's just the beginning. Yeah, it is a, um, it's a process. And uh, Buddhism, unlike the 12 steps, isn't such a, it's not such a linear process. You know, the 12-step recovery model is like, you know, do one, then do two, then do three, you know, and it's, it's pretty linear. Um, in Buddhism, there's not such a linear path. Uh, the, the refuge recovery process is based on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So there is some level of first you look at the, the, the first truth, which is about uh, the suffering in our lives and the suffering of addiction. And then you look at the second truth and the um, cause of addiction being the repetitive craving, really the survival instinct of human beings to crave for pleasure and cling to a pleasure and to hate pain. And then the third truth is the promise, which is that recovery or awakening is, is possible, healing, happiness, for you know, happiness is possible if you do the fourth truth, which is follow the Eightfold Path. But the Eightfold Path is not a linear um, progression, but it's eight areas of life that we have to cultivate and train and, and pay attention to really simultaneously. And the Eightfold Path, I would dare say, is one that is bidirectional. And by that, I mean that we do it for ourselves when we agree to follow it, but that the byproduct is that it also serves the greater good. Absolutely. And I think that, that that's certainly true for Buddhism, and, and I think and hope that it's actually true for all genuine transformative paths, that there's the personal part of our own happiness and freedom and recovery, and then there's the altruistic part of um, being of service and creating a positive change in the world. When we speak of altruism, the, the very nature of altruism is that we, we do it for the ability to do it for the gift of being able to perform acts altruistically, but yet the uh, return is quite selfish. You know, the joy, the satisfaction, the pride that we receive from living a life in this way serves us personally in the highest order. Yeah, but then the the selfish, I I agree with you mostly, but I think that the... um the sense of self um, starts to dissolve a bit as we awaken more and more. And uh, really the interconnection with all um, becomes more and more clear so that rather than just being uh, happy about our own direct experience, we become happy about others' experiences, successes, and more compassionate towards not only our own pain, but the pain of others. And the division of self and other starts to dissolve a bit and it really becomes the way I think of altruism is for all living beings, including ourselves, in that web of, of interconnected existence, but not separate from it. Mm, beautifully said. We are going to go to a break. And when we come back, I'd like to delve more into the process of the Refuge Recovery Program a little bit deeper. And also mention that this sense of the higher good or, or the, the greater good and the greater purpose or the higher purpose that is revealed when we consciously make a choice 
to live in this way. It almost is like a dissolvent of the barriers of the anger, the resentment, the addiction, or the need to hold on to a position in one's life, which is where we get stuck and where the suffering occurs. We are going to break and to learn more about Noah Levine and his work with Refuge Recovery Program, you can visit www.refugerecovery.org. And there are Twitter, there is a Twitter handle and an FB handle that we don't exactly know what it is, but we think it's Refuge Recovery. But you can also just Google Noah Levine and let me spell his last name. It's L E V I N E. You're listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, where we are exploring today expansive methodologies of addiction recovery. We'll take a quick pause and then return to the conversation with Noah Levine. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. What is, what is your happiness? And we're back, continuing the conversation with Noah Levine that originally aired in June of 2018. We're talking about unpacking addiction, transformative approaches to educate and heal humanity. Let's get back to it. And Noah, let's talk a little bit about the process that you would take a reader through or somebody that you were working with in a live setting. So Refuge Recovery is a a full program for recovering from addiction. And the book lays out the whole program. It's the four truths and the eightfold path of recovery. There are refuge recovery meetings here in Los Angeles. There's five a week. And in other places, New York, San Francisco, Portland, people have started refuge recovery meetings. And refuge recovery is meant to be practiced in community and a kind of peer-led addiction recovery community. And the book just came out last week, and we're encouraging people, if they are inspired by this approach, to start a meeting. We'll post it on our website. And that this um, Buddhist recovery program will grow organically as people become interested and involved in it. I could read you a piece from the introduction to the book. I'll give you a sense. Love that. Refuge recovery is a practice, a process, a set of tools, a treatment, and a path to healing addiction and the suffering caused by addiction. The main inspiration and guiding philosophy for the refuge recovery program are the teachings of Siddhartha Gautama, Sid, a man who lived in India 2,500 years ago. Sid was a radical psychologist and a spiritual revolutionary. Through his own efforts and practices, he came to understand why human beings experience and cause so much suffering. He referred to the root cause of suffering as an uncontrollable thirst 
or repetitive craving. This thirst tends to arise in relation to pleasure, but it also may arise as craving for unpleasant experiences to go away or as an addiction to people, places, things, or experiences. This is the same thirst of the alcoholic, the same craving as the addict, and the same attachment as the codependent. Eventually, Sid came to understand and experience a way of living that ended all forms of suffering. He did this through a practice and process that includes meditation, wise actions, and compassion. After freeing himself from the suffering caused by craving, he spent the rest of his life teaching others how to live a life of well-being and freedom, a life free from suffering. Sid became known as the Buddha, and his teachings became known as Buddhism. The Refuge Recovery Program has adapted the core teachings of the Buddha as a treatment of addiction. Buddhism recognizes a non-theistic approach to spiritual practice. The Refuge Recovery Program does not ask anyone to believe anything, only to trust the process and to do the hard work of recovery. This book contains a systematic approach to treating and recovering from all forms of addiction. Using the traditional formulation, the program of recovery consists of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. When sincerely practiced, the program will ensure a full recovery from addiction and a long, lifelong sense of well-being and happiness. I'll leave it there. Mm, I could go on said. and on, but that's probably enough. Oh, I, I think that that more than gives the flavor of the Refuge Recovery Program uh, and the work that you do. I want to just check in about your uh, training with Jack Kornfeld, because you were a young man when you had this revelatory moment that maybe there is something to this meditation stuff. Absolutely. I was 17 years old when I started meditating. And the first couple of years of my meditation practice, I was still confused about the nature of happiness and recovery. I thought that if I just stopped using drugs, I'd be happy. I thought that if I got the material things that I wanted, I'd be happy. And I found myself a couple of years later uh, out of jail in my own apartment with my own car, my own motorcycle, a, a beautiful girlfriend in a relationship with all of the stuff that I thought would make me happy. And I was still quite miserable. I was still stuck in really negative thinking and uh, unethical behavior. It was at that point at 19 years old that I realized that meditation was the only thing that had ever really worked for me. And I um, asked my father, you know, I, want, I said, I want, to do, I want to be more serious about this. And he said, go to a meditation retreat. And I went to my first meditation retreat with Jack Cornfield in 1990. And I had a powerful experience at that retreat. I mean, I, uh, part of it I hated. And all I saw was a bunch of adults and, you know, a bunch of sort of hippie generation people who were not my people. But the practice itself just really spoke to my heart. And I began to understand that um, the happiness that I was looking for was never going to come from outside of myself, and that it was completely an inside job. And I continued to study with Jack Cornfield and do retreats with him. And I went from the three-day retreat to the five-day retreat to the 10-day retreat and did a whole bunch of 10-day retreats and then started doing month-long retreats and did a three-month-long retreat and just really committed to deep. 
um, meditative practice and training. And about 10 or 12 years into my practice, Jack asked if he could train me as a teacher. And I'd already started to teach a little bit. I started to go back into the juvenile hall where I had um, started meditating myself and offering mindfulness classes to the kids there, the inmates. And, um, and I was happy when Jack asked me to start the empowerment process. And um, our relationship continues. Now we teach regularly together. Wow. That, that's phenomenal. Yes. And, and for those of our listeners who don't know who Jack Cornfield is, he really is one of the premier contemporary mindfulness teachers in the world. Absolutely. He really founded, um, you know, kind of modern American Buddhism, the whole insight movement and uh, a lot of the mindfulness-based teachings that are now being secularized into psychology or uh, medicine really um, come from a foundation of Jack and some of his colleagues bringing Buddhism back to the West from their time in the 60s in, in Asia. And it is powerful and it works. I myself have been a meditator for many years. I use it, as I say, in my own practice and my own work with recovery and also with trauma. I work quite a bit with veterans who are returning from war who really uh, are challenged with a lot of trauma healing that needs to happen. And um, many times there is tremendous relief and transformation found in the meditation process, in the, in the process of the meditation and then how it extends out in the world to being more awake and mindful of life, not just when one goes into the meditation state. Absolutely. It becomes our whole life. It becomes uh, bringing awareness and kindness and compassion and appreciation into every uh, relationship and every conversation and every activity of life. The formal training uh, is very important to train our hearts and our minds to break our addiction to pleasure and break our uh, you know, resistance to, to pain, the, the futile attempts to create a life without pain, and to accept that, that pain is part of life and that true happiness comes from relating to pain wisely, not from escaping it. I love what you just said. Can you repeat that? I think that this is a really a key thing, that there's a, a delusion that I think just about everybody has. I think we're born with it because of our survival instinct to want a pleasant experience. We need pleasure in order to survive. We need to avoid pain in order to survive ultimately. And then we start to compu- confuse pleasure with happiness. But we have this body, this nervous system, this, this psyche and heart that are going to experience so much unpleasantness, just the very nature of life, there's going to be pain. It's unavoidable. You're going to stub your toe. You're going to have the pain of loss and of impermanence. Things are going to change. And most of the time, people suffer about change and suffer about loss and suffer about pain. True happiness is being able to be at ease, being able to be content, even when things aren't going your way breaking our addiction to needing our experience to be pleasant all of the time and gaining more, what in Buddhism we call equanimity with loss and uh, criticism and pain and, and failure, ultimately being happy in the midst of difficulties. 
I love what you just said about being happy in the midst of difficulty because I think this th- therein lies the opportunity with this work and with this healing process is to come to know on a on a visceral level not just the intellect but you know in one's heart in one's body that there is joy available residing alongside the adversity that there are the the blessings of adversity the opportunities for transcendence for transformation that come with the suffering and these huge life challenges which none of us can avoid i mean the the destination is predetermined you know what i mean we come to go and what happens in the middle is is the journey is the opportunity Absolutely. I mean, I love the name of your show, The Harvesting Happiness. It's one of the ways that I often talk about it, that actually everything that we need for happiness does reside within us. It's not something that we have to go out and create. And meditation and, you know, the Buddhist path especially directs us in a way to uncover it, to to harvest what is there, the compassion of the heart, the wisdom of the heart. And um, by training the mind, we're able to uh, clear away the weeds that are, you know, kind of choking up the, the, uh, you know, the garden or, or whatever the analogy is, so that we can actually get closer to the truth. And, and it yes. is the truth that sets us free. But it's not a truth that we can think our way to. It's not a truth that we can read our way to or even talk our way to, you know, in meetings. But it's a truth that has to be directly experienced through a disciplined spiritual practice, an internal introspective uncovering in order to harvest. Beautifully said. My guest today is Noah Levine, and his book is Refuge Recovery, A Buddhist Path to Recovering from Addiction. To learn more about Noah and his incredible work, please visit www.refugerecovery.org. You can check him out on Google and find out where he lives in the Twitter sphere and the Facebook land. But his other websites, I'll just make quick mention, are againstthestream.org and dharmapunks.com. Noah, you've been a delight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you from the fullness of my heart for being with us. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests, Johan Hari and Noah Levine, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Remember, Happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to each other. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.